and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarm Podcast. That is the farm podcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. Okay, today's guest is rapidly becoming a regular on the farm. He is an independent UK-based avid podcast listener who goes by Senate. Thank you so much for joining us again this evening, sir. Hey. Hey, yourself. We're also joined by another repeater for this outing, though it's been far too long since he has appeared on the farm. He is a Kentucky-based independent writer, researcher, and activist. He is the author of Uncertain Futures, an assessment of the conditions of the present and the uh, acceleration in utopia currents for data to the CCRU. Folks, I give you guys the great Edmund Berger. Eds, thank you so much for joining us again today, sir. Hey, Stephen. Glad to be back. It's been a long time. Yeah, no, definitely. Like I said, too long. All right, guys, Senate is with me, so inevitably this is a continuation of the farm's storied wacko series, but with a twist. In this sequel, we are going to look at the evolution of the old wacko network from the end of the Cold War up to the current day events. And trust me, folks, it's simply incredible how relevant Wackle's legacy is in 2023. When Keith and I and John Brisson and the rest of the original Wackle crew began the podcast series, we saw it as a largely historical undertaking. But as the show Keith and I did uh, on Abe's assassination this past summer revealed, the old Wackle network is still around, still a player, but with a new generation of leaders and institutions that have carried on the work of the OGs. At the forefront of this revival is another subject as relevant now as ever, private military and intelligence companies. One of the contentions we shall make with this series is that modern day PMCs and PFCs have effectively taken up the role, by and large, of wackle and like bodies and what they did during the Cold War. In that era, Wackel served as a middle ground between Western elites from the conservative establishment and the neoliberal order alike to arrange with the motley crew of international drug and arms traffickers, aging Nazi border criminals, next-generation black terrorists, and religious fanatics and cultists of various stripes who made up the backbone of the Wackel milieu. And incredible it was, both sides of which are largely still existing today and still active together. But increasingly, PMCs and PICs are where they're doing business on any number of levels. At the center of all of this was the most enigmatic of PMCs. It was an allegedly Russian-controlled private military company called Far West Limited. 
But it was so much more than that, as we are begun to see and will continue to see over the course of this series. Indeed, it may be the driving force behind the present war in Ukraine and how Joe Biden ended up in the White House. And seriously, I truly wish I was exaggerating with that claim. Up to this point, we've explored the circumstances that spawned Far West and the origin stories of the people who found it or were at the point of topic in the second installment. We still have a little bit more of a backdrop to unpack, and then we're going to start getting into Far West activities in earnest. And as this show is a uh, continuation of the Wackle series, it is dedicated to Ed Kaufman, alias Don Diligent, an OG Wackle contributor who is dearly missed and hopefully... This series will live up to the high standards that he left us with. And on that note, let us start the show. activities in earnest there's a little additional backdrop to unpack concerning events in the 1980s and 1990s that will hopefully put all of this in a rather compelling context and who better to unpack these things than Edmund Berger he's going to build upon the so-called Bulgarian connection explored in the first installment among other things as a refresher the Bulgarian connection involved a scheme in which arms from Bulgaria and the Bulgarian arms company Kentex were trafficked in Mujahideen fighters in exchange for heroin it involved the Bulgarian intelligence services with the full knowledge and support of the KGB as well as the British Israeli master asset Robert Maxwell the Turkish mafia and the Grey Wolves the Italian mafia propaganda Dewey and Notably, the U.S. and British security services. Basically, everyone was getting a cut of this lucrative guns and drugs trade running through Afghanistan, Turkey, Bulgaria, and Italy during the height of the Cold War in the 80s. Essentially, this served as the early business model for Far West Limited, though I suppose we could maybe even draw further parallels with the World Commerce Corporation, but I don't want to go too far back with all this. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's so crucial to understanding this milieu and the players who were involved in it uh, for all of this to kind of make sense going forward. So let's start with two figures that we're going to be hearing a lot about in this episode. So give us a bit of the backstory on Edmund Safra and good old Bruce Rapport. Yeah. And OK, so this is like a, a just a really interesting kind of nexus of a whole lot. And I'm trying to chop down as much info as i can i guess like 
up front, I just want to say that like the reason that I got interested in basically all of this was because I became interested in this figure, this kind of infamous banker named Edmund Safra. And I'd first come across Safra in Jeffrey Epstein's Black Book of Contacts. And it wasn't really a name that had been analyzed or looked at that much. And then I like kind of subsequently found out that Safra was very good friends with Robert Maxwell. You know, they would like dine together, host like yacht parties together, do business together. Um, so I was like, okay, I got to find out everything I can about this Safra person. That led me into Rappaport and basically everything that's going to follow in a lot of this episode. Uh, but I guess like this just start off. Um, Safra was actually, he was born in Beirut of all places in 1932. And it was, he's born to like a very prominent banking family. Like the Safras go very, very far back. Um, and their particular specialty was currency trading and gold trading. Uh, his direct father, Jacob Safra, he ran this like pretty influential bank in Beirut and it kind of catered to like the Lebanese ruling class. And at like a very young age, um, like his teenage years, Safra went to work at his father's bank and he specialized in the, the precious metals department. Uh, but it's even at like this early stage that we start to get a sense that there was something else going on with Safra. Uh, like in the mid 50s, he was apparently targeted. Well, like he was like a person of interest by the Federal Bureau of Narcotics because he was ostensibly involved in the smuggling of morphine base from Lebanon to Milan, and the profits were being washed through the, the family bank. And I believe that this is the legendary like French connection, you know, which moved morphine base from Lebanon to refineries in Italy, where it was refined into heroin and then shipped through France over to America. And it's interesting because it was like right in this period where the FBN was kind of taking an interest in young Safra that the um, whole family kind of left Beirut and they relocated to Milan itself, which was the destination of these uh, heroin floats. But the timing is like very kind of ambiguous because they did move around a lot in this kind of time period. And it's, I think, around 1955 or so, they kind of decamped to Brazil, where they started to build a secondary banking empire, which has remained there, you know, basically to this day. But as for Edmund Safra himself, about a year later, 1956, he left Brazil and landed, you know, over in Geneva and Switzerland. And that's where he founded like his own first bank. That was something that was called the Trade Development Bank. And 10 years later, he kind of like straddled the worlds of Geneva and New York. And in New York, he formed the Republic National Bank. And even though the Trade Development Bank owned shares in Republic, Republic was his flagship bank. Um, it quickly became like a multi-billion dollar company there very rapidly, which is always kind of a telling thing. Um, and you start to track his movements over time. 
you start to notice there's like these weird connections that start to like bubble up that suggests like, oh, there, there is something going on with this guy at a very like early stage. Um, for example, one of, one of his close associates, they kind of went back together from childhood, was a man named Edgar D. Picciotto. Um, and D. Picciotto would ultimately end up owning the trade development bank, Safra's Geneva Bank. Uh, but he, according to SEC files, he was also on the board of advisors to a company called Quantum Industrial Holdings, which was one of George Soros's uh, holding companies. And so I thought that was interesting in light of what you guys said last episode, you're talking about Soros in Brazil, and then you had the uh, Safra Brazilian connection and now the connection between Safra and Soros. Uh but, yeah, it's not surprising, but yeah, yeah, to bring that up, it's very compelling. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, that's something that I want to like kind of get into a little bit more. And and much like Safra, uh, Picciotto's like nephew appears in Epstein's contact book as well, which will be a, a reoccurring kind of pattern through all of this. Uh, but in 1975, uh, Republic bought the American Swiss and Credit Company, which was at the time held by the FDIC. And the reason that the FDIC had American Swiss was because it had previously been owned by the uh, Franklin National Bank of Long Island, which had been driven into bankruptcy when it was taken over by Michelet Sendona. You know, this is the mafia banker, P2 member, and kind of prolific uh, launder of heroin money. And so, you know, here in the mid seventies, we kind of start to see Republic in the orbit of these like very large, almost transnational in scope kind of money laundering and drug trafficking networks. But it's really in the eighties when all of this starts to go into overdrive, um, Republic and software by extension were named they were not indicted uh as a player in this like just vast and mind-boggling uh money laundering operation that was set up by the colombian cartels to wash their cocaine profits and it was called la mina or the mine and this was the subject of this like really large um dea probe called operation polar cap and what like Lamina or the mine would do was take control of gold mines and refineries all over Latin America. Um, and would they would turn the drug money into gold and they would turn the gold into jewelry and then turn the profits over and over again through a bunch of different banks. And there was all these banks that were involved, like soft, both Republic national and trade development bank. Um, BCCI, kind of the, the infamous uh, intelligence-linked shadow bank that touches just about everything, uh, pops up in this. And then like a bunch of jewelry stores in Los Angeles. And the money from Lamina was being used to like set up um, and manage like aircraft manufacturers, like aviation companies, forward operating bases in rural parts of the United States you know, for drug flights. Um, and some of the money also appears to have been deposited in various savings and loans. So it was probably like washed further 
and turned into like real estate capital. Um, it's about the same time that software's banks are playing a role in this big kind of drug connection. Um, it pops up in the Iran-Contra affair. And if people are interested, they can check out like the 14th chapter of the report of the independent council that investigated the Iran-Contra affair. That's Lawrence Walsh's um, report. And it talks about how money for the enterprise, which was like, you know, the name for the Iran-Contra like financial structure was actually being moved through Republic Bank. And there were actual like bank officers, most notably a woman named Nan Morabia. And they were actually physically laundering the money, like taking it out of the Republic National Bank accounts, putting them in paper bags, carrying them off to like other people to move money to like, you know, get arms to the Contras. Um, and it's funny because Safra was like infamously litigious. And when like the media would report on his bank's involvement in things like Lamina or Iran Contra, he would like come down with the hammer. And so if you read a lot of stuff, it's like, oh, he was being smeared by his competitors. He had no involvement in this. But then you can go to the actual government report and see it right there, like his bank was being used. Um, but one of the things that I also kind of dug up was this FBI 302, which is like a the interview summary of Nan Moravia herself. And she told the FBI that Safra was very close friends with a man named uh, Willard Zucker. And this happened to be the man who was managing the overall finances for this enterprise system that Oliver North and his cronies had set up. And he did this through a Swiss company called CSF. And Nan Moravia, she was kind of like, oh, they're friends, but I don't think that they're doing business together. Well, it was subsequently like revealed in the press that CFS was um, also setting up like aviation holding companies and other things for Republic Nationals, like private jets. Um, and just as like an interesting aside on Zucker himself, uh, before he was the finance manager for Iran-Contra, Kind of earlier in the 70s, he had been on the board of Investors Overseas Services, which was like that mobbed up international mutual fund that was run by Bernie Kornfeld. And he was actually one of the board members who helped facilitate Robert Vesco's takeover of that, um, which I know is something like you've written a lot about, Stephen. So I thought that that was a, a fascinating little connection. Um and so that's like a brief. It certainly rundown. has been, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know if you wanted to say anything about it or oh, not. Yeah, no, like, definitely go for it. Yeah, well, it, this um, iOS was a money kind of front for uh, the Lansky mob, right? Um, and it facilitated a lot of capital flight out of third world countries. But um, it, as often happens with these sorts of things, uh, it fell on hard times and had to be purchased or taken over by somebody. And who better to do that than Robert Vesco, this kind of uh, infamous international uh, financier slash, I don't even really know how to describe a man. Like this guy had his fingers in every pie. Um, 
just it's an incredible story and i recommend that like, people look at it. you talked about it in your uh, epstein book too um but there's like a lot more about soft road that like, we can get into it you know more later on but that's just kind of a little introduction to his more like shadier connections um but the next guy bruce rapaport um not nearly as well known as Sofra. This dude is like truly an international man of mystery. And there is one book that's like a definitive book about him. It's by Alan Block and it's called All is Clouded by Desire. Um, and I highly recommend it. It's a really incredible book, especially for some of the things that we'll be talking about today. But with Sofra, or sorry, with Rappaport, uh, his kind of origins are like super murky and done like a lot of digging kind of beyond Block's book, looking into like um, Hebrew language newspapers and genealogy databases and like kind of the best been able to determine about where Rappaport came from. Like he was born in 1922 in Palestine um, to a Jewish or not Jewish, but a Ukrainian family who had, immigrated there. I thought that was kind of interesting that he does have this Ukrainian pedigree. Um, he was part of the British army in World War II, and it looks like he was a member of what was called the African Pioneer Corps, but then also was a part of a British commando group that was made up of British soldiers called like the Special Interrogation Group. And this like recruited really heavily from like Zionist paramilitary groups like the Haganah and the Irgun. And so after the war, he kind of continues this military career. Uh, he was part of the sixth airborne division of the British military. And then after the formation of Israel itself, he played like an essential role in forming their military police. Um, and somewhere in the midst of all this kind of like military activity, he became a lawyer and a judge in early Israel. Um, but by the 1950s, he was starting to get into these various scams. And one of his partners in these scams was the mayor of Jerusalem, a man named um, Teddy Kolick. And this is intriguing because Kolick later became outed as like a British intelligence asset. And so knowing that Rappaport had been British Army, during World War II, I was wondering if maybe that connection to British intelligence had continued. Uh, but because of these scams, he ends yeah, up having... It's, it's oh, certainly ahead. interesting in light of how closely tied uh, the British were uh, to the OUNB as well. I mean, they had had uh, connections with them, I think, going back to at least like the 1930s. And obviously that whole thing is just really bizarre too i mean for a lot of years their handler was uh general bony fuller who was um oh. on the one hand one of the major architects of tank warfare and then on the other hand an accolade for a time of alistair crowley so um yeah appropriate figure to manage the OUNP. is that the same one that ends up in the order of saint john uh, is that no that was else? admiral barry Domerville, i believe okay, okay. i think he and fuller knew each other though I, they might have actually been in the link together if i recall correctly so interesting yeah all right it's a small world yeah um, well, these circles it certainly is <laughs> yeah but like go back to like rapaport like because of these scams that he was doing with this 
mayor slash British intelligence asset. He has to flee Israel. Uh, and he goes to Switzerland, to Geneva, and he starts a series of businesses. Um, and the loans, interestingly, are provided by Swiss Israel Bank. And I think that this is like really important because this is one of the banks that was used by Israeli intelligence to like move funds around. I think also maybe played a role like later on in their covert nuclear program. I think that here we start to have enough suggestions that Rappaport was either at this stage an active intelligence asset or was kind of being courted by them. And this gets a little clearer when you start looking at this convoluted corporate structure that he set up. And the main base of it was a series of tanker companies with like a bank at the center of it. And that is his Intermaritime Bank. Um, one of the early shareholders in Intermaritime was a man named E.P. Barry. Barry was an OSS veteran. Um, he had been like the like intelligence chief in, in Geneva, I believe. And after the war, he became like a banker. And at the same time that Barry was involved with Rappaport, he was also active in the banking network set up by like the CIA's super banker, a man named Paul Healywell. Uh, Healywell co-owned a very infamous Bahamas bank called Castle Bank and Trust. And it's clear that even here in the 1950s that Rappaport's bank was very tied in to the Heliwell Hassel Bank network. Like we have the EP Berry connection. And the other connection is that the co-owner of Castle Bank was this mob attorney from Chicago named Burton Cantor. Uh, he was also one of Rappaport's key attorneys and basically appeared in everything that he would do like subsequently. Um, and this like connection to intelligence. Uh, it remains for the rest of Rappaport's life. Um, he was very close to BCCI, you know, um, and they appear to have held a stake in his intermaritime bank. through a couple of front people. I kind of like keep that in mind because that BCCI stake comes back later in a very big way. Uh, and he was also very close to William Casey, uh, Reagan's CIA director. And Casey had this like group of friends uh, that he used as his own private informal intelligence apparatus. They were nicknamed the Hardy Boys. And this group included people like uh, Robert B. Anderson, John Shaheen. And these are like various businessmen and political figures and Rappaport himself. And so without like going too far, there's like a couple of things I want to like point out about Rappaport. Um, the first, like he used the services of an attorney named Samuel Pizar, who was like an East-West trade specialist. Um, and Pizar was also the attorney used by Robert Maxwell and later Jeffrey Epstein. And this Pizar is also the stepfather of our current Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, uh, which is a really fascinating little connection there. Um, and Rappaport appears... In the Iran-Contra affair, going to kind of skip over that because there's another interesting kind of scandal that he pops up in. It's called the Guns for Antigua scandal, 
and this will also become very relevant later on, but the most like brief summary of it that I can give, um, Rappaport had linked up with a very, very shady actor named Maurice Sarfati, who lived in Miami, but he owned this melon farm in Antigua. At the time, uh, Rappaport was super active in Antigua. He owned a bank there called Swiss American. And this was like a joint venture between his inter-maritime bank and the banking apparatus of another just astoundingly corrupt dude named Marvin Warner. Um, And there's like, you could do like a whole episode on what Warner gets up to. And it's actually really interesting because Rappaport and Warner have ties to like the ever mysterious Somerset, Kentucky in this whole period. Um, But Warner ends up going to jail for his involvement in like a big savings and loan scandal. And so Rappaport ends up uh, in full control of this bank, Swiss American. And it's at that point where he links up with Sarfati and Sarfati's like weird so-called melon farm. And it's around the time that they link up that Rappaport probably brings in, um, at any rate, they arrive on the scene, uh, this like motley cadre of Israeli arms dealers and military men. And they had this plan to turn the melon farm into a training facility for private military forces. Um, and this was almost certainly like a cover for the like covert training of Colombian cartel soldiers that um, the Israelis got implicated in. That's like, we know this because um, as part of this melon farm mercenary training school operation, they got a shipment of weapons from Israel that were destined for Antigua, but then they end up rerouting that, um, that shipments on tanker ships. And they divert it to Colombia, where it's then turned over to figures in the cartel, the Medellin cartel we're talking about here. And one of the, these weapons was ended up being um, the gun that was used to assassinate uh, Luis Carlos Galan, who was like the um, anti-cartel Colombian presidential candidate who unfortunately died. So that's like a pretty, you know, much like you know, talk about Safra and you start to see these links to BCCI, to the cartels, to Iran-Contra, you see the exact same pattern unfolding in parallel to Rappaport. And I guess like the last thing that I want to mention in this kind of long-winded introduction to these men um, is something that they were both linked to. And it was this curious entity called the Nebula. And the nebula, which will be like, this is something else that will like come back again and again. Um, it was the name given to it by the Belgian gendarmerie, which is like Belgian's equivalent to the FBI. And it's described in this um, classified but leaked dossier that's known as the Atlas dossier. And this has been passed around amongst like Belgian journalists for a long time, going back to the 90s. Uh, but was uh, English version was made available on the Institute for Globalization and Study of Covert. Ah, I can't ever remember the name of it. Uh, that that website, everybody knows that website. Um, but in this document, it talks about this nebula as this kind of sweeping, 
criminal enterprise and lists a litany of crimes like money laundering, drug trafficking, arms dealing, diamond smuggling on like a global scale. And at the center of this like, you know, dense web is this Belgian businessman and diplomat named Felix Prezeborski. And the dossier gives like a pretty detailed history of the nebula. And it focuses mainly on the period running from its apparent involvement in Iran-Contra to its appearance in Russian mob money laundering scandals, which we'll loop back around to. Uh, but like yeah, the, the reason I think it's important to introduce like the nebula and Prezaborsky like at this point um, is because it brings Safra Rappaport and the Wackle crowd like all into a common alignment. And this is because like there's a bunch of different figures that are named as members of the nebula, like people who answer to this Felix Prezaborsky character, names like Paul Vanden Boyance, who was like a Belgian defense minister, uh, Roger Boas, who was like the owner of a defense firm called ASCO, and Pierre Salik, which was a textile guy who owned a bank called Geoffrey's Bank. And all three of these men, you know, and these are just a couple of all the people who are named, they've all been independently implicated in arms trafficking, particularly with like weapons flowing to Iran during the Iran-Contra years. Um, and there's been a lot of analysis that I've read where Paul Vanden Boyan appears to have been like the key figure in the Belgian stay behind networks, you know, their, their equivalent of Gladio in Italy. But all three of these men that I just mentioned, um, they were all members of a group called the Circle of Nations, which had been formed by a man named Paul van Kerhoven, who is connected to all of them independently of this Atlas dossier. And this is the man who ran the Belgian chapter of Wackel. And so there's a, you know, could go forever with this, but I think that like the nebula, what's being described in this Atlas dossier, I think that this is Belgium's equivalent of Italy's kind of P2 lodge and acted as this logistical hub for stay behind operations and all the other kind of things that were happening. Like, I know, like, Stephen, like, you've talked in the past about, like, maybe the Order of St. John as being something of, like, a P2 equivalent in the United States. Well, this Geoffrey's Bank that appears, like, in the dossier, it had a special consultant from America named uh, Ronald Sablowski. He's, like, a New York real estate guy and kind of became implicated in some pretty big financial scams. Uh, but he was affiliated with the Augustan Society, which is one of these groups that's like super tied to the to the OSJ. So here they like have kind of a, a a weird linkage between those OSJ circles and this group in Belgium called the Nebula. But okay, so there's three important points that I kind of want to mention in relation to the dossier. Um, the first is that it names one of the figures involved as a man named Bruno Goldberger. And it says that Bruno Goldberger had worked for what it calls the Globus Group. And Globus is actually the successor to both Kintex and Coracom in Bulgaria. 
And so here we see a connection to Bulgaria starting to emerge with these people. Um, the second is that the dossier explicitly names Republic National Bank as one of the banks that's used by the nebula to move its money about. And it states that it was Safra himself who handled what it calls special transfers, quote unquote. And then the final point is that, um, you know, this man at the center of the nebula, Felix Prezaborski, he had a son named Daniel Prezaborski. And according to the dossier, Daniel was a key player in these various criminal activities. It was actually going to be his father's successor in the group. Um, Daniel was a partner in the law firm of a man named Pierre Schifferly, a Swiss attorney, um, who was actually a leading figure in Wackel in the 1970s. Uh, it's also attached to something called the Pinochet Foundation, which I have not found any information on what the Pinochet Foundation was. Um, but it turns out that this same person, Schifferly, was one of Bruce Rappaport's like prominent attorneys that he used. And I've managed to like dig up um, like court documents that show that Daniel Prezaborski actually worked on some of Bruce Rappaport's affairs. And so in this nebula figure, we connect together Safra, Rappaport, Kintex, uh, maybe the OSJ, Wackle, the Spectre of Stay Behind, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's my brief introduction to the worlds of Safra and Rappaport. Oh, there's definitely an uh, SOSJ connection in all of this. Um, well, especially when you get back into um, Castle Bank and Trust and Paul Hallowell, another um, figure involved in setting that up was actually a member of uh, America's OG chivalric order, the uh, the one that's been America first since uh, 1783. And uh this uh, particular Castle Bank figure, Paul Hallowell friend, uh, also helped them refurbish their headquarters in D.C. with some generous loans to boot. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, you know, and again, um, same group was probably behind setting up the SOSJ. And uh, this milieu was also in contact with some of these white Russian monarch mar monarchist circles that I've recently been exploring in the Patriot Games series. And that brings up another interesting point about this too that I wanted to uh, briefly address, which I also got into a bit in Patriot Games, but that's the connections the Bank of New York has to all this. So in, in the first installment of Patriot Games, I noted that uh, Jean Guchkov, uh, a successful banker who has worked for the Intermaritime Bank of New York, Julius Baer, and HSBC, of course, the Intermaritime Bank of New York was the one that Rappaport was closely associated with and kind of became a de facto owner of uh, Bank of New York. So anyway, allegedly, Guchkov uh, is part of a clique of white Russian descendants cultivated by the KGB during the 1980s with extensive ties into the story Geneva banking community. And Guchchev was at the forefront of these financiers, I should note too. But his family likely had ties to Russian intelligence spanning decades. Guchchev's father was actually a close associate of Sidney Riley, the so-called ace of spies dating back to the pre-revolutionary czarist era. 
So nearly a hundred years later, no one's really sure if Riley was a British spy or a Soviet double agent. He also moonlighted for numerous other intelligence services as well. I think he had actually started out with the Okrana, the Tsarist secret police, and yeah, he um, made the rounds. Let's just leave it at that. So he was supposedly targeted and assassination assassinated by the legendary Operation Trust. This involved a proto-KGB, I don't think they were called the Czechos then, it was something else. They changed the name all the time before they settled on KGB. But anyway, um, the intelligence agency established a fake monarchist organization to lure whites in. And Riley, who helped set up one of the first anti-communist internationals, was supposedly targeted specifically by this operation. But there's much dispute as to whether he was killed and whether he was working for the Soviets all along. Guchka's uh, grandfather was said to have maintained ties with the KGB and had knowledge of uh, Ridley's survival. And there's a lot of, you know, interesting implications with this, too. Um, So the white Russian community, I mean, it was in a very precarious situation with the broader anti-communist network in the West, Um, even though they had really been at the forefront of starting the anti-communist network. But ultimately, uh, this Western sort of alliance against the Soviet Union became dominated by the whole, you know, captive nations crowd that we've been referring to, the Ukrainians uh, and many of the peoples in Central Asia, a lot of other Eastern Europeans and so forth. Uh, And as such, the Western intelligence services generally favored, and the Western governments as a whole, you know, elites behind them generally favored working with this captive nations crowd, because inevitably that would have led to the destruction of the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire, whatever you want to think of this historical entity, as it was broken down into these smaller autonomous nation states. And this was something that the white Russian community, for obvious reasons, was fiercely opposed to. So even though um, they obviously had a lot of access to grind with the communists, a lot of resentment, they didn't support them ideologically, they were willing to collaborate with the intelligence services, I believe, up to a certain point, because if nothing else, uh, the KGB and other nationalist elements within the Russian state did believe fundamentally in the Russian Empire, even if they didn't uh, refer to it as such. And certainly later when Stalin came to power and in general kind of started to take the country in a more, or the empire in a more gradually nationalist direction, they probably found a little bit uh, more to like about the regime, even though they ultimately wanted a change in government. And that was the thing. I think the white community uh, was kind of taking more of a long-term look at a lot of the um, politics in Russia. They saw communism as something that would eventually come to an end. The important thing was uh, preserving the historic mother Russia to them. So, uh, but again, they were not um, totally unwilling to collaborate with the Western intelligence services either. And it's especially interesting that um, these guys seem to have really risen to prevalence during the 1980s. Again, you know, this is unfolding during the height of the whole Bulgarian connection. Guchchev was supposedly training, you know, with Rappaport directly at the Maritime Bank of New York. Uh, these guys did have close contacts to the KGB. And in, you know, Guchchev's case, uh, this may well have gone all the way back, you know, to the 1920s. Um, 
operation trust in general you know in terms of the things that i've just outlined is really interesting i mean on the one hand despite the fact that it often being depicted as a resounding success by both uh, the americans and the russians i was actually shuddered rather abruptly i think around 26 or 27 after they had grabbed riley and supposedly it was just partly because they were concerned about the whites actually penetrating their intelligence services in turn uh but also, too, Riley was actually deeply involved in setting up one of these first major anti-communist organizations. Uh, so, again, you have to sort of wonder to some extent if there was maybe something being played out against the captive nations crowd in relation to all of this and some of the other factions of white Russians. Of course, in this uh, particular era, the main pretenders to the throne was the family around um, Grand Duke uh, Cyril who had collaborated uh, early on with the Nazi party in the 1920s. In fact, Cyril might have been one of the figures channeling money uh, from Henry Ford, Adolf Hitler, uh, going up into the beer hall push in this whole era. And this clique around the uh, the Afaba, I believe, this uh, sort of paramilitary intelligence network that supported Cyril, uh, had actually uh, embraced a lot of the captive nations crowd and uh, effectively you know, wanted to break up Russia or was at least willing uh, to concede autonomy to Ukraine and some of the other states. So it's an interesting dynamic. Uh, you know, you'd hear a lot about how trust was supposed to target the Supreme Monarchist Council in Paris, but you don't hear a lot about how it targeted Cyril's network, even though the whites in Paris had often shown more of an inclination to work with the Russians and um Cyril was, uh, or at least some of his backers, were cultivating the uh, the Eastern European groups and the other captive nations types. So there might have been a lot of intrigues with this going way back, and it seems like a lot of these modern-day white Russian descendants are still connected into this whole thing with the Supreme Monarchist Council. There's, there's at least more unity on this hand now. Uh, they now all support the family of the Kriliovichs, uh, which Cyril was a part of, so there's that. Uh, so yes, Guchtiv. He is a major gate opener of Western capital in Putin's Russia. Jindendi Tim, uh, Timchenko, a Putin-allied Russian oligarch, was brought into the Geneva community by Gutschow. And needless to say, I mean, as I've said before, he worked directly with Bruce Rappaport. And yeah, this is a big part of how they've infiltrated uh, Western capital. But you know, again, it begs the question, how long have some of these connections really been around? And also, too, I mean, as I got into in Patriot Games, before I tie up my long-winded digression here, this same circle of white Russian financiers and so forth is also connected to a modern-day version of the Order of St. John, one that uh, features General William Jerry Boykin, a major figure uh, in the Joint Special Operations Command and a co-creator of the Delta Force as one of its members. So potentially these connections... <laughs> have just continued i mean it's it's a wild <laughs> yeah i know i don't mean to get us all here too sidetracked but i mean there's just you know we're I, I mean i think this is like important you know to understand though as we're getting into this is some of these feuds have been going on especially in europe for a very long time yeah now. 
And as incredible as it may seem, I mean, I think this is why there is this kind of fanaticism that's driving us towards a third world war, because, I mean, this has been simmering for you know decades maybe even a century or something it's it's ready to go off guys it really <laughs> is So to get us a little bit back on track here with Far West, can you um, break down the great ruble scam for us, as well as its links to the Bulgarian arms company, Kentex, Bank of New York, and good old Captain Bob? Yeah, okay, so I'm really excited to talk about this because um, I have a bunch of documents that I don't think have really been looked at before. So it's getting a little little farm exclusive on some archival materials here. Um, I guess like, set up kind of talking about the ruble scam um i kind of want to mention source material uh so there's like you can find maybe some scattered newspaper articles about it um and a few articles here and there but the main source is claire sterling's book thieves world now this is problematic because sterling is about like as opposite from a reliable source as you can like humanly get. Um, She's basically a CIA mouthpiece. She was very close to people like Michael Ledeen. And she was one of these people that really um, spread a lot of disinfo about paramilitaries and the drug trade in the eighties, where she would kind of take groups that were like, like the gray wolves, for example, who were part of the gladio apparatus. And she'd be like, well, they're Soviet drug traffickers. Which, you know, maybe there were like some Soviet links there that would fit with what we're talking about. But she she intentionally would go out of her way to distort the picture of what was happening. And so, like, the material that she gives on the ruble scam, it's like really interesting in that respect. Um, In her book, Thieves World, she strives to separate any and all ties between the scam and the Yeltsin family. she presents Yeltsin as this like noble savior of democracy, you know, fighting a wave of corruption and maybe stuff that's like endemic to like Russian culture itself. Um, so as you know, might get into it a bit, that's 100% incorrect interpretation. Um, and then there's also her main source who is only referred to in the book as Mr. X and Mr. X is the driver of this scam. And according to Sterling, it was like a private initiative. Um, Mr. X is this banker operating on the peripheries of the West who sees a group doing kind of shady currency trading and decides to utilize them to like, you know, uh, deliver a fatal blow to the Soviet Union. Um, And as she outlines, this group is centered around a, rather infamous character named Leo Wanta, 
who subsequently became a peddler of just like outrageous stories that got very popular in the 1990s conspiracy kind of underground, um, which most of those are completely unfounded stories. And with Wanta, he had like two, two mobster buddies. We'll talk more about them in a second. Uh, but shortly after Sterling published Thieves World, um, person who'd probably be very familiar to people who listen to the Penny Royal podcast, um, Jay Orlin Grabby, got a hold of Wanta and wrote kind of an article based on interviews with him. And Wanta tries to downplay the Mr. X that Sterling focuses on. Um, and he identifies him as what he describes as a U.S. Treasury agent named Philip Wainwright. Um, and so like he downplays this Mr. X Wainwright and by extension makes himself, himself being Wanta, appear as this like heroic government operative who is left out in the cold. So we, now we have two competing narratives about what was happening. And so it's like, which story is right? And so I decided that the only way that like you could resolve this was to get a hold of the primary source documents that Claire Sterling was drawing on, which are held in her papers at the Hoover Institution and examine those and compare them uh, to her story and to Wanta's story. And as you can imagine it, um, the documents portray something very different from both of these narratives. Um, they do confirm that Mr. X was Philip Wainwright, this banker. Uh, but there's, as far as I can tell, there's no evidence in any of these documents that he worked for the U.S. Treasury. And as you read through them, you realize that like Sterling herself um, really seemed to have had difficulty figuring out who Wainwright was. Uh, one note from her research assistant, this is a quote, uh, it says, um, I've searched about 130 databases, including all those that might reasonably be expected to have information on Philip Wainwright. Nothing has come to light. He doesn't even appear in the Biography Master Index, which directs one to information in over 100 biographical directories. And then there's a subsequent note that states that Wainwright was not registered with the SEC and that the firm um, that he was listed with the National Association of Security Dealers, um, but the firm that he was listed as attached to no longer existed, did not appear in any business directories, and it was never mentioned in any newspaper. Um, this note references him trying to confirm if Wainwright worked for Lehman Brothers at some point. Uh, he couldn't confirm that, but I have subsequently confirmed this. Uh, so who was Philip Wainwright? Um, from what I have been able to piece together, he was born in Willington, Delaware, and started off working for the DuPont family. And I think that... I was just that, about to ask if yeah. there was a DuPont connection. Yes. I think that's... This is really significant, guys, because... Um, you know, for those of you unaware, uh, Delaware is a very popular uh, location for corporations to be incorporated in here in the United States. I mean, if you really look at this, so many major corporations have their headquarters in Delaware. 
there's a reason for that. There's um, a lot of generous benefits the state offers, and there's um, basically, I think, a board that approves it, which the DuPonts have had a lot of influence yes. on. So the DuPont family, you, you know, I mean, people ran endlessly about like the Morgans who haven't really been a major power for probably 60 or 70 years, but the DuPonts are one of those groups that are still around, still have a lot of juice, and you just don't hear a lot about them, even though our, our current president comes from their uh, longtime center of power. Well, it, it's this is I agree that this is such an important connection because not only did Wainwright work for the DuPonts, but he married into the DuPont family. So, oh, that's even more interesting. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. well, the DuPonts have a lot of longtime connections to the National Association of Manufacturers, too, which is, yes. again, this is another group you don't hear a lot about, but this was basically the rights version of the Pilgrim Society, even though I think it actually predated the Pilgrim Society. It's been really at the forefront of sponsoring right-wing uh, groups and efforts, I mean, for at least, uh, I think, over a century now. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think the DuPont family actually are the ones who have the, uh, the uh, NAMS uh, records to boot. So, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, in Wilmington. So, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of very uh, close connections with all of this. And Yeah, it, it's also, yeah, it's interesting in light of that, because even in the 1980s um the duponts actually were extremely close to american intelligence and particularly the cia uh several dupont companies mainly aviation companies uh were directly involved in iran contra like dupont planes doing bombing runs in nicaragua and that kind of stuff um and even like there's DuPont holdings that seem to have been involved in like extremely complicated financial schemes to raise funds for covert operations. And I would like really recommend people to check out uh, Pete Bruton's book, The Mafia, the CIA and George Bush for how um, the DuPont holdings played into basically the looting of American financial institutions for covert purposes. And so when like we talk about Wainwright and him coming having this very, you know, lifelong DuPont connection, I believe this is where he is coming from. And you um, said that Gravy was a source for some of this as well. Yeah, Gravy got a hold of Wanta after um after Thieves World came out. And he tells the Wanta perspective, which is an incorrect perspective, but he accurately outs. Sterling's Mr. X as Wainwright. See, that's interesting because uh, Gravy had a lot of ties to Philadelphia, which is um, only about, a, you know, what, about an hour or less, I think, yeah. Wilmington, like probably about, you know, a 20, 30 mile drive. And yeah, a lot of the the VIPs of both cities kind of live in a lot of these really uh, exclusive communities between them uh, some of which i've chronicled before but yeah that's really interesting because yeah uh, jay orlin gravy i think because of his connections to philadelphia would have certainly been in that milieu and of course he's he taught um at the uh, university of philadelphia school of economics i believe yeah the wharton school mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that's another i definitely think it would be very plausible that he would have known um was it whalen or Witten? what wainwright wainwright yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So, that's something to look into because i'm still he's Wainwright is, you know, we'll get more into it in a moment, but he's very slippery and difficult to track across time. Uh, 
And I, I would be interested in knowing more about his like domestic network because through these documents, I mainly have his like foreign business network. Um, I guess like, yeah, it, in the context of the Ruble scam, he mainly worked through a company that was registered in the Isle of Jersey called Amberhaven. Um, and then he also was connected to a company called the Fides Trust. And the Fides Trust kind of like, I've kind of found other references to it. Like in the 70s, it was one of the financial bodies used by the, the Marcos family of the Philippines to siphon assets out abroad. And I think that this raises some like important qu questions about the financing of the ruble scam itself. Because in these documents that I got from the Sterling papers at Hoover show that these people were buying, well, yeah, that they were trafficking in astronomical amounts of gold, like huge amounts of gold bullion. Um, Sterling mentions this in her book. She argues that they were buying gold that had been looted from the Soviet treasury and selling it to a company in the U.S., um, a trading company in New Jersey. But when you look at the documents, she's misreading the documents. They, um, I'm sorry, she says that they were selling the gold from the treasury, but the documents show that they were actually buying it from the U.S. So I'm skeptical that it is actually Soviet gold. Um, that's just one example of where Sterling goes amiss in her analysis. Um, as for Wainwright's partners, uh, Leo Wanta worked through a company called New Republic USA and another called Ameritrust. And there's these papers have a, just numerous pages of massive currency exchange transactions going through these companies. And they're mostly going to a wide network of companies around the US. And I've gone through a lot of business filings for all these companies. And every single one seems to be some kind of corporate shell they were basically all set up around 1988. They were all dissolved around the same time in the 1990s. Um, Wantas had two main partners, uh, Jack Tremonti and Martin Gulowicz, both of whom came out of the Detroit mob. And during the time of the Ruble scam, they worked out of a company called Global Tactical Services, which was registered in Duncan, Oklahoma. Now, this is pretty fascinating because Duncan, Oklahoma is actually where Halliburton got its start. And I know that that comes back later in Far West. Um, there was also a place where there was a bunch of mobsters from New York had shown up there to try to take over a bank. And these mobsters not only had ties to like the Gambino family, but they had ties to organized uh, to the CIA and to circles around Adnan Khashoggi. Um, if people are interested, they can read more about this episode in a book called Inside Job about the savings and loans crisis. And the bank that they try to take over was located on the same street, just a few buildings down from the law offices that registered this global tactical services. Okay, so like talk about the ruble scam itself actually wasn't that complicated and it wasn't exactly illegal. 
And what they did was purchase like rubles, like insane, mind boggling amount of Russian rubles. Like we're talking massive chunks of the total supply of all rubles in existence through like kind of gray market sources. And the, from what I can tell in the documents, Wainwright would locate financing and he would hook sellers of rubles and buyers of rubles up. So like he would get people who are selling rubles, put them in touch with Wanta, Tremonti, and Gulowicz. And then he would arrange for buyers from them, uh, kind of managing them as middlemen. And he would do this in a very carefully timed manner to impact the market price of the ruble itself. And what he was doing was collapsing the price of the ruble, you know, siphon it out of Russia, destabilize it, drive the price down, trigger a run on the ruble, and thus totally collapse any value that the ruble itself had. And, you know, I won't go into like really thick detail, but there is a couple of very fascinating like examples. I just think it would be kind of cool to touch on. Um, in the documents, there is a plan to borrow hundreds of billions of dollars from the Bank of China through a syndicate consisting of one Maurice Sarfati and the principals of a company called the Hotel Global Hotel and Gaming Corporation. Now, this Sarfati that the documents show that Wainwright was acting as an agent for is the same Sarfati that I mentioned a minute ago, who appears with Bruce Rappaport in the guns for Antigua scandal. Uh, as for this global hotel gaming corporation, uh, the principals are listed as a Dr. P. Crosby and L. D. Pistel. I believe that this is Peter Crosby of the Peter Crosby family of Resorts International fame. And it's interesting because, you know, it has Dr. P. Crosby and L.D. Pistel. Um, there was a man named James Pistel who was very tight with the Crosbys, uh, did a lot of business kind of in that Resorts International milieu, and also ended up as a business partner of Robert Vesco. And in this particular arrangement, it looks like they're trying to get this massive loan from the Bank of China, and Wainwright would get like a big kind of kickback from it, and that that money, the kickback money, would be put to the ruble scam, but it ended up collapsing because Sarfati had to back out. The dates that it shows Sarfati backing out coincide with the dates of the Guns for Antigua scandal going south, so it's clearly linked uh, about a month later, Wainwright does secure his money uh, that he needed because he brokers the sale of a manufacturer, the U.S. assets of a Swiss manufacturing company called Bergen to a company called Radiac Abrasives. Now, Radiac was a subsidiary of another company called American Optical. The owner of American Optical was one Maurice Kuniff who was a longtime employee of a DuPont company. So here are the DuPonts coming back through this. But I believe that the main 
backers of the great ruble scam was this group that I talked about a minute ago called the Nebula. Um, and Sterling in her book, you know, she tries to disavow any intelligence connections to all of this, uh, but she's forced to admit there were unknown backers who were lurking in the background. But like, if we turn to that Atlas dossier, it has the list of middlemen that were used to launder money for the Nebula. Like that's where Sofra's name appears. But also on that list is New Republic USA, which is the company that Leo Wanto is using in the Ruble scam. And the dossier, it goes on to state, and it says that the, the New Republic would use Nebula-controlled accounts at this Belgian bank called CGER. And the dossier says that these were managed by quote-unquote Farouk Khan of the Khan clan. Then when we go back to these Sterling documents, we find banking information for New Republic listing none other than Farouk Khan at CGER Bank. And so the um, Sterling documents confirm what the Atlas dossier is saying, at least up to a point. Uh, then the Atlas dossier states that money in the G C CGER account was being moved to Iraq kind of at the end of all of this. Um, and then if we flip to the Sterling papers, there is a note from Wainwright himself to Sterling that says, quote unquote, I am in the early formative stages of moving on the Iraqi dinar. Do you want in on information techniques? Please advise immediately. And so when you start, there's other examples of this, but you can really start to put it together where Leo Wanta and his crew are actually front men of the nebula. And, you know, like I argued a minute ago that the nebula, I think, is really kind of an extension of the Wackled network in Belgium. So by extension, the Ruble scam is an extension of the Wackle milieu itself. Um, just very quickly, just a, a few connections to kind of loop this back to our like our main topic. Um, documents show that they were buying rubles through a Vienna company called Impex, which was controlled by this KGB officer named Alexander Kuzin. And Kuzin had this kind of vast smuggling network that would sell black market arms and nuclear materials like all over Europe and the Middle East. But most importantly, MPEX was at some point it had been the European subsidiary of Kentex itself. So here we go back to that like Bulgarian connection. And then besides that, there is kind of the specter of Robert Maxwell uh, himself floating through all of this. And one of the like top people that Wainwright was coordinating with in the Ruble scam was this Finnish man named uh, Michael Pricefreund. And he ran something called the Transatlantic Foundation. That's what they were like buying and selling a sizable portion of these rubles through. And Pricefreund also had affiliation with Amber Haven, which was Wainwright's company. And in her book, like Sterling describes Price Freund citing Wainwright as someone who, quote unquote, 
knew most of the powerful men in old Russia and had access to the highest levels of Russian government and military personnel. And I found some declassified CIA documents that talk about a KGB asset, a Finnish man named Kreisfreund, who the KGB had like suspected had been compromised by the CIA. So I, I haven't been able to confirm, but I suspect that it is the same individual. But with his um, transatlantic foundation that they're buying these rubles through, um, the Swiss finance journal Bylons reports that this organization, Transatlantic, had been set up with the aid of a very prominent and very kind of crooked Swiss attorney named Iso Linzinger. And if you look in like a lot of Swiss press, this is a man who is quite extensively like reported as having contact uh, with both American and Soviet intelligence. And in this period that, you know, Linzinger set up the Transatlantic Foundation for the Ruble scam, he was also very involved in a company called Nordex, which was ran by a man named Gregory Luchansky. And Nordex was one of these primary mechanisms for capital flight, uh, weapons trafficking, including like nuclear materials, and also buying up privatized industrial concerns in Russia. Uh, but it had been none other than Robert Maxwell himself who had helped set up Nord Nordex. This was one of those KGB front companies that would operate in Europe that would like move, you know, assets abroad. Um, and even after Maxwell died, Nordex, um, his sons continued to work for Nordex. I found newspapers reporting that, like going up to at least 1995. And so that suggests to me, like kind of a clear, um, that the, the ruble scam itself is connected to this wider issue of capital flight and also starts to kind of bring these networks into a kind of a tightening tightening web. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, let's see. So do you have uh, anything there on Bank of New York? Yeah, and... Oh, gosh, th this is another very kind of complicated one. Um, with Bank of New York, um, do you want to go into its connections to the rubles, like the brief kind of connection to the ruble scammer with uh, Rappaport more generally? Uh, well, let's get I mean, let's just go with both. I mean, because I think it's really integral to so much of this stuff here. Let's okay, yeah. Um, well, so like, Rappaport and Bank of New York have this very long history. Um, people generally associate it with the 90s. It actually goes back to 1979. And that's when the vice chairman of the Bank of New York resigned and joined the board of uh, Intermaritime Bank. And then about two or three years later, Rappaport starts buying into Bank of New York itself and over kind of across the 80s, um, Rappaport ends up just continually increasing his ownership stank in this bank. Um, by 1984, he had like nine and a half percent of Bank of New York. And so it's against that backdrop that the bank 
launched kind of this ambitious takeover plan where they wanted to take over another kind of venerable old Wall Street institution called the Irving Trust Company. And the reason that they wanted Irving Trust didn't have to do with assets. It was actually because they wanted access to a proprietary wire transfer software that Irving had developed. It's called Micro Cash Register. And this like really turned into a very kind of bitter dispute between these two companies uh, that got unexpectedly resolved when the kind of collapse of BCCI happened. And like I mentioned earlier that BCCI frontman had owned a pretty big stake in Intermaritime. And when that bank like BCI was starting to fall apart, Rappaport needed somebody to take that stake. And who better but this bank that he was basically co-owner of, Bank of New York. And so they bought it, and this gave Bank of New York a very large ownership stake in Intermaritime, but it also increased Rappaport's own stake in Bank of New York itself. And so you kind of get this very interesting financial architecture um, where these two banks, Intermaritime, Bank of New York, were fused together on like a really kind of fundamental level. And it was throughout like this exact same period where Rappaport starts entering into the Soviet Union. Um, He met with Gorbachev personally, this is around 1990, uh, immediately on the heels of um, Robert Maxwell's appearance alongside Gorbachev in Minnesota, kind of an infamous encounter between the two. And they struck up all these various joint ventures between like particularly Soviet shipbuilding industries and Rappaport's companies. Um, But he also got into a whole bunch of different like oil and gas ventures, mining projects, um, and developed all these connections to like Soviet banks in Russia and other kind of Soviet bloc countries. Um, And working on this leg of the project in particular was Pierre Schaeferly, who was that attorney who was from Wackel and was connected directly to the nebula once again. Um, And this whole kind of foray into the Soviet bloc ends up being critically important for Bank of New York. That's because the bank was setting out to organize its Eastern Banking Division under the leadership of a woman named Natasha Gerfinkel, who is one of the bank's vice presidents. And Rappaport was there at basically every step of the development of the Eastern Division, kind of networking it together with the contacts he was developing in the Eastern Bloc. Um, Like all the banks that he brought to Bank of New York became correspondent banks, which helped pry open the Soviet zone to the West. Uh, But it's clear that it wasn't just banks, but it was also organized crime itself. Uh, Gordon Thomas and his kind of controversial biography of Maxwell talks about how Maxwell put the gangster Simeon Mogilevich in touch with what an uh, unnamed banker from Geneva, who in turn set Mogilevich up with the Bank of New York. And this had to have been Rappaport, Rappaport's like 
Intermaritime Bank was based in Geneva and Rappaport had an extensive number of like mutual associates with Maxwell. Um, I, I do believe that they were directly linked, but I've never produced like a smoking gun for it. And there's a bunch of lawsuits that showed that Bank of New York's Eastern Division was very tied to Mogilevich. Uh, one lawsuit text that I've dug up outlines contacts between uh, Natasha Gerfinkel and her husband with Mogilevich and how this information was taken to the bank executives by the bank's security officers themselves because they were alarmed, you know, your banking division is being captured by organized crime. The banking uh, executives opted to ignore it. Um, I know that you had some additional information on Natasha Gerfinkel and her husband. I don't know if you wanted to throw a little bit of that in, Stephen. If not, I can keep going. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I can uh, go into that. Well, yeah, there's uh, some interesting stuff about this. This goes into a thing called the... uh, the Clearstream scam, and um, I'm actually just quoting here from a book uh, called Black 9-11, Money, Motive, and Technology by Mark H. Gaffney. Got some good stuff on this. In fact, I think it's one of the only English language accounts um, on the whole Clearstream uh, scandal, which is very telling. Um, but yeah. Uh, so anyway, to quote from the book here, uh, Western banks extended a helping hand, especially the Bank of New York, which in 1999 became embroiled in a major international money laundering investigation. The full story would easily fill this entire volume, so I will limit the discussion to a summary. It seems that in 1995-1996, Bank of New York executives working under the authority of Senior Vice President Natasha, um, how is it pronounced again? I think it's Gerfinkel. Oh, Kagalowski, Kagalowski. Yeah, Kagalowski. Yeah, so, okay, so Konstantin Kagalowski, her husband. husband was at the International Monetary Fund and with the other bank, right? Yes, yeah, just to clarify, so... Uh, they weren't married when the Eastern uh, Division was being set up. So when it was being set up, she was just known as Natasha Gerfinkel. After oh, they got married, okay, she became okay. Natasha Gerfinkel Kagalowski. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, just to clarify. Okay, okay, we got that. All right, so anyway, let's get back to the quote. Uh, it seems that in 1985-96, Bank of New York executives working under the authority of Senior Vice President Natasha uh, Kavosky, which is what her, she became after she was married, uh, set up a computerized wire transfer system to enable the speedy washing of funds out of Russia. Records later confirmed that Russian gangsters and even the Cali cartel made use of the system. Some of the laundered money may also have included loans to Russia from the International Monetary Fund, which points to the likely involvement of corrupt Russian officials. Curiously, Ms. Kagelvosky's husband had been an economic advisor to Russian President Boris Yeltsin and was also an associate of Russian oligarch Mikhail Kadovansky. And uh, I should also point out that Mr. Uh, Kagovalsky uh, had also become, was also working with the IMF directly during this time frame as well. Uh, but anyway, to continue here with the quote, as many as 160,000 separate money transfers were spun through the system over a period of several years, an average of 170 transfers each day. 
And this may not sound like a lot now, but kids, keep in mind, this was like back in the 90s. Okay, so anyway, continue with the text here. Some of the individual transfers were ever, were very large in the range of 200 million, and they totaled at least $10 billion, though a lawsuit filed in 2007 by the Russian government put the total much higher at $22 billion. Much of the cash ended up in offshore accounts in the Cayman Islands, Liechtenstein, and other safe havens. Imagine that. Yeah. A story in the New York Times hinted at the background role played by the U.S. intelligence community. The article named Israeli banker Bruce Rappaport, there's that guy again, one of Bank of New York's principal shareholders, whose Inter-Maritime Bank in Geneva had directed Bank of New York's initial expansion into Russia. Yeah. Also, when Gene Fitzgerald, I believe, was like working with this guy, okay? Yeah. So, Anyway, this uh, was one, that was page 129. I'm going to jump ahead here to page uh, 130 here. As the Bank of New York money laundering investigation deepened, bank officials brought in the Wall Street firm Sullivan and Cromwell to represent them. The very firm where CIA chief Alan Dulles had worked once upon a time. Some things never change. Yeah. And, and I do have some information that like goes right along with that kind of through um, oh, finish with the uh, oh, oh i didn't i thought sorry no no yeah, yeah okay just okay going into page 131 here and i'll wrap up here uh okay so the investigation to make of new york money laundering scam was delayed by the 9-11 attacks but eventually resumed in 2007 two bank of new york executives who had pled guilty to conspiracy were finally sentenced to six months house arrest <laughs> and a five-year probation period you gotta love this crap yeah but yeah i mean i did more time i think in jail for like having i mean uh an ounce of weed on me than these <laughs> um the two were also ordered to pay a twenty thousand dollar fine and six hundred and eighty five hundred thousand in compensation a hand slap that's putting it mildly the bank of new york reportedly paid 38 million in penalties and compensation and agreed to sweeping internal reforms to ensure compliance with its anti-fraud money laundering obligations. Natasha Kagalowski, who had supervised what may have been the largest money launder in history, was never charged with a crime. After reportedly cutting a deal with Bank of New York, she testified on behalf of the bank and was allowed to exercise millions in stock options. The Bank of New York's defense attorney purchased Kagalowski's testimony and her silence in order to limit the scope of the federal probe. While many questions remain unanswered, it is absolutely clear the Bank of New York failed to reform itself. On February 14th, Valentine's Day, you got to love this, 2020, uh, 2012, New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman filed suit against Bank of New York Mellon. In 2017, Bank of New York merged with Mellon Financial Shares, a match made in heaven there, uh, for defrauding thousands of clients out of some $2 billion in foreign currency exchange manipulation schemes. According to Schneiderman, Bank of New York had hatched the scheme in 2001, which of course means the security fraud was ongoing even during the earliest money laundering investigation and settlement. Even as they were agreeing to reform bank practices, Bank of New York managers were busily fleecing their customers. Speaking of Chachpa, in retrospect, there was secrecy. Uh, there was scarcely a time from the mid-1990s up to the present when Bank of New York was not engaging in criminal activity. 
Uh, he's being generous, by the way, saying yeah. <laughs> they just started in the mid nineties. No, it might have gone back much further. Um, yeah, it's interesting to know too that one of the uh, most storied figures in America's OG America First, the good old chivalric society from 1783, was one of the founders of Bank of New York, going way back in the day, and he used it all the way back then to fund the Federalists. And uh, of course, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, it's got a long history of this kind of stuff. Um, but anyway, Ed, I know you wanted to jump in here, so tab at it. Yeah, but... yeah. So that that was a great summary, and I'm definitely gonna have to check that book out. Um, but there are just like a few like details that you can find in the lawsuit documents that just show how kind of brazen and depraved Bank of New York's activities were. Um, various lawsuits charge that uh, Gerfinkel, I guess later Kagalovsky, came her name. Uh, other Eastern Division staff, uh, Rappaport, and a mysterious figure known as Bob Klein, who was later determined to have maybe not have existed. Um, they set up a global network of shell companies to do a tactic that they called spinning around, which is where you have hundreds of companies um, and you take the money, so you take the $200 million, and then you split it up, you dump it into a bunch of companies, and then you just keep spreading it out into more and more companies, moving it all around the world. And the way they were able to do this is because they developed their own real-time database software to track those money flows. Um, Lawsuits also describe that they developed their own encrypted communication system to discuss this stuff, the encryption communication system was called Cyphergrams. And the key to it all was that um, software, that um, wire transfer software that Irving Trust had owned called Micro Cash Register. And the bank would even like give their clients access to this um, Micro Cash Register software so that their clients could do their own wire transfers and not have any kind of bank oversight um, while they're doing it. So this is like literally just like completely run amok. Um, Several bank officers ran their own um, front company out of an apartment in Queens called Binex. Investigators subsequently linked Binex to... Simeon Mogilevich, that's another one of the key uh, Mogilevich connections. And European press reported that they had like found ties, like transactions between Binex and Nordex, that company that like mentioned a minute ago that Robert Maxwell had um, been involved with and had, you know, played a peripheral spot in the, in the ruble scam. Uh, but what's interesting is that Sofra's bank also appears like in this mix as well. Um, bank of New York and Republic National Bank were correspondent banks, which means they like held accounts with one another. And so they could easily transfer money between one another. Um, but Republic National also had this very interesting task uh, in post-Soviet Russia they were like the main vehicle to get dollars into Russia. 
like Republic National Bank couriers would get, you know, pallets of dollars from the Federal Reserve, be put on planes, it would be shipped to Russia, and it would be used to prop up banking institutions. And of course, these banks were like controlled by criminal outfits. And so these dollars were um, financing their activities. But then at other points, like Republic National would like take dollars to Russia and then it would flow back out immediately in this big money funnel that Bank of New York um, was running. And so like all of this, like just insane, like it's, it's economic warfare. Like I think we have to be fair, you know, yeah, it's money laundering, but this is a coordinated assault on like the Russian economy. Um, and it all comes to a head in 1998 when, you know, the country is clearly spiraling towards a crisis. Um, the ruble, you know, because of the ruble scam has completely collapsed. Um, the dollars that have flown in are just gone. Uh, the assets are privatized and just everything is, vanishing into this offshore system like a big black hole and so the imf unlocks what's called a stabilization credit for russia it's hundreds of millions of dollars to like prop up the economy and lo and behold the money never gets to its destination the credit just disappears off into like the offshore void and the the russian economy collapses very catastrophically in that year but suddenly you had this international probe, like a global hunt for the funds, not just the IMF stabilization credit, but just this overall looting that has been taking place. Um, and it's Bank of New York's and Republic National that get very much caught in these crosshairs. And out of nowhere, uh, seemingly out of nowhere, Republic National Bank files what's called an SAR. It's a Suspicious Activities Report. Uh, reporting funny kind of financial transactions involving Republic, Bank of New York, and Binex, that little front company in Queens. And this basically outs Bank of New York, and it makes Republic look pretty good. And this is kind of what sets the dominoes in motion for like a lot of the lawsuits and investigations that follow. Um, a lot of investigators think that Republic wasn't acting altruistically because it was a player in all of this, um, but that it was just trying to get ahead of the probe, you know, that it was trying to make itself look good, it, take the high road, so to speak, as all this was kind of crumbling down around them. And uh, it's Russian journalist Oleg Yuri. He wrote this really interesting article about how, like, shortly after these events, Safra had a meeting with Boris Berezovsky, um, allegedly concerning cooperation between like Safra and the FBI, where he was turning over information to the feds. And Yuri claims that sources told him that Safra fled from the meeting in terror. And it wasn't long after that that like Safra did die in like exceedingly bizarre circumstances. Um, but that's kind of how the, the house of cards crumbled.
back home with Far West. Um, one of the other banks that seems to have been involved a lot in this scandal, which later touched into Clearstream and all this other stuff, was Bank Minotep, uh, the Russian bank, uh, base bank that is Natasha Kayavosky uh, appears to have been uh, transferring a lot of funds for while she was at the Bank of New York. So it's a bit of a web here, but... Um, so interesting enough, with Bank of New York, one or excuse me, Bank Minotep, um, one of the figures who was active on it uh, right around the time a lot of this uh, was unfolding was a figure known as Vatislav Surkov, who uh, is quite notorious. In fact, Adam Curtis actually made a documentary about him. Uh, he is usually credited with the postmodern approach to um russia's information warfare if you will and uh, certainly he does have a flair for dramatic uh he actually wrote a novel um it was absolute zero or something like that presumably under a pseudonym uh which is quite interesting close to zero uh which is quite interesting it was turned into a play and a lot of other stuff but um so on record, I think, is saying the only three enduring things out of America were what uh, Jackson Pollock, Tupac Shakur, and maybe Elvis, if I'm not mistaken. But um, interesting guy, regardless of how you want to look at him. But anyway, he had started out in finance and he was on... Uh, he was involved in the PR department of Bank Minotap uh, during this time frame. A lot of this stuff was unfolding. And then from there, he goes on uh, to Mikhail Friedman's Alpha Bank, and he's involved with that for a time. And of course, you know, for those of you who have read uh, Peter Dale Scott's account of Far West, you know that Alpha Bank uh, was one of their early financial partners. In fact, that might have been what put the group in contact uh, with a lot of their uh, Western uh, supporters. And uh, so it's interesting that... Uh, Surov also ends up in the, or uh, excuse me, Surkov also ends up in this milieu during this time because he was for many years very close to Putin, uh, even though he's kind of wavered back and forth. Uh, there's certainly a possibility that he might have been one of Putin's uh, sort of early uh, figureheads tied in with this group though there was a lot of uncertainty about that. Uh, later, of course, he was accused uh, by the individuals on Left RU and specifically in the third Barbarossa because he um, essentially he directed uh, television and what have you in uh, the Russian Federation throughout much of the nods. So essentially nothing got on the air unless he approved it. And he was accused uh, specifically of enabling a lot of far west propaganda to go through. Uh, via outlets like Tomorrow, and especially with these, another interesting figure, uh, Sergi uh, Kurganyan, I believe, who has um, also had a very interesting existence within uh, Russia and was tied into many of these same uh, ugly arcs that we were just discussing there, uh, Friedman and the whole crowd here. In fact, he was supposedly the guy who uh, brought together the sort of meeting of mob bosses of the uh, oligarchs uh, in 96. Uh, but this guy would later come into very uh, strong confrontation with a lot of these monarchist traditionalist circles in Russia. 
uh, specifically. Uh, he was described by Dugan as a traitor and working for the oligarchs, uh, Yorkos, which you will hear a lot about in another installment in Israel, and denounced by people close to the good old Constantine Amalfia guy as well. So yeah, there I think is definitely some interesting substance that these guys here might have been involved actively in some of the uh, later Far West propaganda efforts. And like I said, um, it might have been in some cases that uh, Surkov was a sort of informal back channel to the Far West group and Putin. Of course, at one point, uh, this came from one of the leaked um, transcripts uh, involving the Far West directors. This one was supposedly recorded in September, uh, 20, uh, September 27, 2003, but it possibly might have gone back as far as uh, 1999. But it was a meeting that involved Vladimir Filin, uh, Alexei Livnikovstev, and uh, uh, Anton Surikov, as opposed to Surikov, and Sergei Petrov, and Petrov was basically Putin's representative. This is uh, unfolding, it most certainly probably was from 2003, because it's unfolding around the time that um, the oil Kois thing was playing out, the oil company thing, which is really crucial to understanding the drama in uh, Ukraine right now, but that's another installment. But anyway, this is around the time that um, that old, uh, Petro was informing his comrades in Far West that uh, a lot of the aforementioned Ogolarks, including the head of Bank Minotep, were on the way out. Uh, some of them might even end up in prison. He also notes that uh, Surkov might be on the way out as well. Apparently, Anton Surikov felt kind of sorry for Surikov. Uh, quote, one shouldn't be that rough with poets. So... He's a very interesting figure that seems to have shown up in this milieu and might have been actively involved in first the whole thing with the ruble scandal and then later with all this drama around Yukois, the oil company in Russia, which is just, it's really central to a lot of the intrigues we're going to unpack later on. So to bring it back home here, there is this interesting role that Surkov plays in this and later goes on with the Alpha Bank and... Uh, some of these other connections and certainly he appears to have had a lot of support from the far west crew and helped enable some of their latter propaganda in the russian federation while simultaneously directing putin's postmodernism potentially uh it does kind of seem like that maybe he was more closely aligned with the far west crowd than putin as he has allegedly been under house arrest uh, since the ukrainian invasion unfolded in 2022 uh, and he was also denounced by many of the same people who denounced uh, uh, Kugryan, his uh, close associate in Russian television in the 90s. So, yeah, you can kind of see how some of these figures in the far west quote to kind of give you a preview are still active in modern day Russia and how potentially... They're also battling the same milieu of white Russians who bizarrely came out of the same financial crowd that we've been outlining. Uh, again, it was supporters of Constantine Mafia who basically called Surkov a traitor after he was put under house arrest. So, yeah, um, there seems to be a lot of bad blood between uh, some of the people in these uh, networks, to put it mildly. 
Well, all right. Um, I think on that note, it might be a good uh, segue here into some of the American links. We already went over this a little bit, but it probably bears repeating as we get more into the uh, connections to 9-11 here to bring them up again. So, you know, again, some of these links are enticing. There's KBR, Halliburton. Uh, there's also the defunct private military company, Diligence LLC, which is headed by former CIA and FBI Director William Webster. Senate, can you give us a crash course in some of the American bodies real quick? Okay. Well, um, the key one I think that's important for us here is uh, Diligence LLC. So um, it's uh, said to be a subsidiary of um, KBR Halliburton. But um, from what I read, they say, uh, you know, Halliburton itself is not actually that important to it. Um, it might, the connection might just be more administrative than anything. But um, let's get into it. Okay. So Diligence LLC was kind of, was there and there are a lot of people involved in it here and uh lots of them have different roles president founder director advisor um so we'll just try and keep up um okay so diligence llc uh founded by a lot of guys from backgrounds in american and british intelligence so some of the people we've got listed here are a mike baker who served in the CIA for 14 years, Nick Day, who is a former MI5 agent and serves as the director and founder. Uh, a lot of these guys are, you know, public and Googleable, so, you know, their identities are, are public here. Um, in 2004, the CEO list included uh, Joe Albor and Ed Rogers, who, along with Baker and Day, also managed... Um, a firm called Newbridge Strategies LLC. Um, Alba previously served as Secretary of State for Emergency Management under Bush, um, and he managed his political campaigns in 2000, though he resigned uh, due to incompetence over uh, Hurricane Katrina. Um, Richard Burt, uh, was at one point the president of Diligence LLC. I'm actually just gonna, just so you get an idea of, uh, you know, the pe the people involved, gonna read. There's a kind of longer listing here of of some of the people involved in Diligence. So these are well, was at one point a list of members on the advisory council of Diligence. So we've got. William Webster, former director of the FBI and a CIA director. Michael Howard, who was the British Home Secretary, leader of the British Conservative Party uh, for, for a short time, in two years, and uh, leader of the opposition. Um, he is the director of Diligence Europe, the European subsidiary. Um, we've got also an advisor, Arnold de Bourg. Borchgraf. Um, he he is actually British, despite the name. Um, he's served in the Royal Navy, but he's also a leading journalist for Newsweek, uh, was an editor of the Washington Times and uh, works for United Press International. Um, he has close 
connect works uh close connections for um intelligence he's collaborated with the center for strategic and institutional studies um i think uh what was interesting about him as well was um he's uh i mean just you know to get into the kind of elite connections of a lot of these people in the high up um, military groups i mean he's a descendant of um sir charles townsend who was um in in quite a famous siege during world war one the siege of kut in uh mesopotamia oh near iraq i think um and he's also a descendant of um i thought this was interesting especially what where we go over the podcast uh george townsend uh who's the viscount townsend who lived between 1724 and 1807 and fought in the war of uh austrian succession and uh the seven years war at the battle of the plains of abraham so there's a deep kind of base going you know to to these guys um here uh we've also got uh listed thomas mac uh mcclarty who was um Clinton's chief of staff and a senior advisor to the Carlisle Group, a member of the Council of Foreign Relations, listening to a lot of stuff, um, and a and he was on the board of directors of uh, the Council of the Americas and the Free Trade Area, uh, and he was um, heavily involved in lobbying for NAFTA. Uh, we've also got Edward Matthias, who is another... Um, director of the Carlisle group at one point also a member of council of foreign relations so i think uh we've kind of painted the picture here but back to president uh richard but um he began his career at the institute for uh international institute for strategic studies which is a kind of london-based think tank which uh connects you, you guys know what what these things are about by now um but he's also a member of the council of foreign relations so throughout his career but has been part of the more aggressive wing of the foreign policy establishment um he was part of team b um which was a group uh for those no no a group uh, created uh in the 70s and and into the 80s by bush who were kind of um expert uh experts on the soviet union and they basically played a significant role in kind of hyping up uh, the anti-Soviet hysteria and creating the, you know, defense crisis, the missile gap uh, and those kinds of things. I'm sure someone could give a better, better into to that. Uh, but going back to Bert, um, Bert's career is heavily correlated with uh, the rise of Reagan uh, in 1983. He was involved in a cover up of the um kl kal 007 uh scandal which promote uh which promoted a lot of uh a lot of bad feelings to russia he's also a protege of henry kissinger and has been with kissinger mcclarty associates since 2007 where he's closely um tied to homeland security ventures a consulting firm that does uh, business in defense, intelligence, and homeland security lobbying. Uh, through Burt and McClarty, diligence is linked to Kissinger's uh, inner circle. 
um yeah just want to get all of this out there so you kind of get the connections and the milieu uh, oh, that, um, that these guys thing, are in if i could just yeah. add one quick thing here too about uh richard burt um yeah, this is quoting here from uh, Peter Dale Scott's American War Machine, which I'm sure most of you listening to this know by now is one of the few English language sources to publish about the uh, Far West uh, back during the knots. Um, but anyway, on 187, uh, Mr. Scott says, Diligence chief transnational con uh, connection in Russia is Alpha Bank, the one I was just talking about, the chairman of diligence from 2001 to 2003, was former U.S. ambassador and arms negotiator Richard Burt, uh, who, interestingly enough, uh, also once called the Salt Agreement a favor to the Russians. But anyway, Quentin continuing with Scott, is also on Alpha Bank's senior advisory board in Moscow. Alpha's clout in Washington dates back into the mid-1990s when its oil company, Timon uh, was loaned a $480 million in credit by the U.S. Export-Import Bank after lobbying by Halliburton. The Clinton White House and State Department tried to veto the Russian deal, but after intense lobbying by Halliburton, the objections were overruled on Capitol Hill, which then was Republican-controlled. The State Department's concern were based on the fact that Timon or Timon was controlled by the holding conglomerate, the Alpha Bank, that had been investigated in Russia for mafia connections. So again, it's uh, interesting just to sort of point out um, some of the issues with this. Of course, later on, again, uh, you know, we uh, addressed this a little bit, but you had the whole kind of situation in Colombia where um, Far West was supporting uh, FARC and of course some of their partners um, such as Alfonso Davidovich and so forth were directly connected to FARC and laundering funds with them and then on the flip side of the coin you had Plan Colombia going on uh, which DynCorp very closely connected uh, to the Democrats and got a lot of work during the uh, Clinton administration, made a killing off of, and was active in Colombia during this time. Uh, so yeah, there's some interesting stuff with that. And it might have, you know, to be perfectly honest, continued one into Eastern Europe as well. Um, again, I know in the second installment, Senate it mentioned uh, Vladimir Filin's links to Serbia, especially uh, going into the 90s, taking over some of the crime networks uh, managed by Arkin and some of those other figures there. And I mean, certainly um, sex trafficking was a part of that. And uh, wouldn't you know, DimeCore was also really active in the Balkans at that same time frame and was also uh, convicted of sex trafficking. So, uh, and, um, you know, again, Jeffrey Epstein, a uh, figure later linked or a figure linked to a lot of these guys like Robert Maxwell. He was involved in the modeling industry for a lot of years as is well known. And almost 50% of the models who end up at these uh, major fashion events come from uh, areas in the former Soviet Union, such as the Balkans. So yeah, there's a um, one of interesting layers to some of the activities of these groups. Uh, but yes, so anyway, that's an uh, interesting connection, though, that Alpha Bank also had Richard Burt and Diligence LLC. And again, it's, you know, we've already alluded to this a little bit um, before, especially the first episode, kind of getting into some of the conflicts between the PMCs and Africa. But 
in a lot of ways they almost are like mafia families at war with each other sometimes over resources and what have you um but certainly on a much grander and more devastating scale to put it mildly uh but anyways then please continue i'm sorry about the uh long winded rambling there no um it's good you mentioned that uh they um diligence did uh more work for alpha group so um one thing they got in trouble for was um they basically uh diligence were involved in a lawsuit where they infiltrated um kpmg to obtain their to obtain uh an audit of a fund called the uh international growth fund which was a firm associated with Jeffrey Galmond and Leonard Raymond. And uh, supposedly they did this for the benefit of Alpha Group's subsidiary, uh, Altimo, uh, Alpha Telecom's subsidiary. Um, and yeah, the shareholders at the time uh, included uh, Richard Butt. Uh, Richard Butt. Um, okay, carrying on. Uh, Richard Butt is also a trustee of the Atlantic Partnership, um, which was founded in 2001 by conservative leader Michael Howard. Um, it, it kind of does the job of, you know, I, I guess you can imagine by the name, you know, you know uh, Anglo-Euro relations. Um, but part of the executive committee is uh, another figure from Diligence LLC, uh, Lord Powell, um, Tom Lantos, who was the head of the national head of the National Security Committee of the uh, of U.S. Congress, uh, probably at that time, um, Pierre Lelouch, who was a French MP, and uh, a man by the name of uh, Brent Scowcroft, who was a National Security Advisor to Bush Senior. So. Um, Charles Pohl, uh, Lord Charles Pohl, is um, heavily connected in, uh, is quite high up in the, you know, Br British establishment. So he's previously a foreign affairs advisor to Thatcher and to Major. He was a member of uh, David Cameron's International Policy Council, which uh, included Lord Guffrey and Neville, Neville Jones. Um he was also chairman to a uh, variety of uh, companies, so uh, International Advisory Board of, Ro of the Rolls-Royce Organization, um, also Thales uh, UK, Caterpillar, uh, Textron, and Alpha Capital. Um, he's also the president of the Chinese-British Business Council and the chairman of an investment fund uh, Sagata Asset Management. However, the connection to TNK Textron is noteworthy because um, it also brings up another Nazi connection. So the former uh, Wehrmacht general, uh, Walter Dornberger, um, who supervised production of V2, of the V2 rockets um, in Nordhausen, was a vice president of Textron. And he was someone who was taken via um, paperclip. Um, and the reason we mentioned Powell is, uh, I think, uh, an organization that some at some point needs to get mentioned in, in all of this is um, 
all of these guys are quite closely connected to the uh, Henry Jackson Society, which um, I'm sure a lot of you would have heard of. Um, so it's kind of like a think tank political action committee. It was formed uh, in Britain around 2005. Um, they promote kind of a kind of the uh, liberal internationalist humanitarian intervention um, foreign policy that we've kind of come to know and understand. Um, Henry, they're quite. And just yeah. To, like you know, yeah, Henry Scoop Jackson uh, is actually kind of seen as a guiding figurehead in um, the neoconservative movement too. He was a Democrat, um, but yeah, a lot of his followers would uh, continue with the Republican Party, and he was kind of considered one of the um, philosophical uh, inspirations for neoconservatism. Um, the glory of glories, I guess. <laughs> yeah um indeed i i think i think i mean the thing to get from because i i guess we didn't talk too much about diligence specifically but um i think the thing to get from this is uh, they're they're all uh connected because um even from the henry jackson society a big contributor to it was um a man by the name of Jim Rogers, who is the executive secretary, and he was um, one of the. I think he was one of the founders of Quantum Font with um, with George Soros. But he's also a a really heavy figure um, in in the in in the Henry Jackson Society, uh, and is on the news quite a lot. Promote you know talking about foreign policy, finance capital, and and those kinds of things. to one of the figures who was allegedly crucial in the American end and just in general major foreign policy guy who doesn't get talked about a lot, and that would be uh, Fritz Irma. What can you tell us about him and why he's overlooked Senate? Fritz, yeah, we mentioned him, I think, in previous episodes. Um, he uh, passed away very recently, last year. Um, he, was, he was quite old, I think, in his, in his 80s or so. Um, so we'll get into a biography of him. He was, yeah, he, as, as you mentioned, he was more of a background character. Actually, if you look around for information of him, there won't be much, but there, um, there, there is enough if you know what you're looking for. Um, so Fritz Sumhoff, uh, is a former CIA official who specialized in Sovietology. He, he's got a master's in it. Uh, and was a key player in U.S. intelligence and national security 
uh, circles during the Cold War and its aftermath. Um, so his career included stints at Radio Free Europe, the RAND Corporation, National Security Council and the CIA, where he served as the director of the Center for Strategic Assessments and later the chairman of the National Intelligence Council. Um, he's also been involved in a lot of the more aggressive uh, development of developments of foreign policy, in particular nuclear strategy. So when he joined the RAND Corporation, the organization was heavily involved in aggressive geopolitics and nuclear strategy, which later became associated with neoconservatism. Uh, the main proponents of the ideology at the time were Albert Wallstetter, uh, James Schelsinger and Herman Kahn, uh, who believed the possibility of winning a nuclear war, uh, believed in the possibility of winning a nuclear war and advocated for a first strike capability. They rejected isolationism and believed in spreading the American ideals globally through the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, Wall Setup became the ideological leader for a group of neoconservative ideologues and politicians who were behind the war in Iraq and the project for a new American century which aimed to establish a new... Well, you guys know what, what all of that was about. <laughs> um, but this group included uh, figures such as Richard Pearl, uh, Francis Fukuyama, um, Lynn Cheney, Salman Khalizadeh, um, and and plenty more we've all heard of. Also, Paula so, Dobryansky, um, an important one to point out, her father, Led Dobryansky, was um, one of just the, uh, he was um, uh, an expat from Ukraine um, and just a major proponent of the whole captive nations thing. He played a big role in um, launching the Victims for Communism Memorial Foundation and all this other good stuff. Um, but he's a guy that... Uh, you'll definitely be hearing about in the future as he is integral to how the OUNB uh, was able to make inroads in the U.S. government. And um, yeah, his daughter, uh, Paula Dobryansky, was active in the project of New American Century and is uh, still a big figure in the whole uh, Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation thing. So just want to interject that right quick, but she's a crucial component of the whole thing with the project for New American Century as well. Oh yeah, definitely. I I think there's going to be a need to almost go back over some over some of the wackle stuff, uh, with with all of these uh, new connections coming out because there there is a um direct Fritz uh wackle connection which we'll get into, um here, um so Ermhot's career um really kicked off when he uh joined. Shelsinger's team to develop the actual strategy of limited nuclear war against uh, the USSR. Um, the kind of origins of the uh, of the Bush, you know, neocon willingness to use nu nuclear weapons against Iran can be traced back to Ermhart's work in the field. Um, throughout the course of his career, Ermhart's um, demonstrated a belief in the superiority of American civilization and the country's messianic role. So I guess you can imagine he fits in quite well with uh, that crowd. Yeah, nothing's um, American exceptionalism quite like first strike nuclear capabilities, right, guys. <laughs> yeah. 
um he's not even american as well <laughs> um i know that's uh, the great uh, thing about this all these guys are going around claiming to speak for the stuff with americans like you guys aren't even freaking americans <laughs> uh, yeah i i i i sometimes just uh don't uh, like uh I don't get it. Like uh, I don't know how how they can attach, but uh, who who knows? Um, okay, uh, so at Rand, Umhoff participated in the Rand Air Staff New Ops project under Jim Shellsinger. Yep, which um, oh okay, we've already gone over that. Um, um, okay, Shellsinger eventually went on, I think, to become director of the CIA. Um, and he appointed Ermhoff uh, as his special assistant at the CIA, where he rose to become chief specialist on the USSR in 1984 under William Casey. Um, Ermhoff owed his career to prominent Americans, uh, including Schelsinger, Brzezinski, Wolves. Uh, it said American imperialist there, but I thought, oh, let's let's try and be a bit more, a bit more I don't neutral think about it. Would it would be unfair to describe Zbigniew Brzezinski as an American imperialist. Definitely, I just don't want to get stopped at any borders. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm hoping you know whoever uh, is is sitting in the CIA and SBU office right now is kind of uh, noting my moderation. Um, okay, so Umhoff uh, owed his career to a lot of prominent American imperialists, uh, including Schelsinger, Brzezinski, Wolseley, Weber, Gates, Casey, and Condi Rice. Um, he's known for his personal loyalty to Reagan and was even called the shadow of Brzezinski in the early 1990s. Um, Umhoff became Yeltsin's personal supporter with within the CIA after per Perestroika began. And um, as chairman of the National Intelligence Council, he was credited by Gates with Yeltsin's strong backing from the CIA. Um, Ermhart was also part of a secret group with Gates and Rice between 1989 and 1991, responsible for planning emergency responses in the USSR. Um, or, well, I guess planning the emergencies. Um, Ermhart and Gates became uh, Robert Gates, um, who was also, I think, ended up as a director of the CIA, uh, became close friends in 1980s uh, during their work. But in 1987, Gates introduced him to Vladimir uh, Khrushchev, who was then the head of the KGB's Foreign Intelligence Service, who was visiting Washington incognito with Gorbachev. There's a lot more that can be said about those meetings, but we'll we'll stick to Ermhart unless anyone wants to pipe in with something. Well, just real quick to, uh, you know, we I think we I got into that a little bit um, in the first installment, actually, but this is around the time when Perestroika uh, was unfolding and essentially uh, Kutschev uh, seems to have... Uh, given Gates the signal to speed up the process uh, so that they could push it through more. And again, Khrushchev is the guy who's generally um, credited with setting up all of these uh, KGB front companies or coming up with the concept, at least, of setting up all these KGB front companies uh, that you know, a lot of the wealth uh, from the Soviet Union would be preserved for 
which Robert Maxwell also played a role in. So yes, this is all connected to the great ruble scandal that um, Ed was just doing such a fantastic job of outlining for you guys earlier. So yes, I, I know you might have seen like we went out and left you in a lot of places there, but all this stuff is really interconnected. And this, uh, you know, there's actually a good point there to bring that up, Senate, because yes, this sort of links it back to a lot of the earlier things that we were discussing. Yeah, I, I mean, I hope in, we get to actually cover all of, you know, those meetings in, in detail at, at some point, because uh, you could almost make uh, make a movie about it. And, and seeing the uncovering of, you know, what is described to us as, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union. Oh, they, uh, you know, pushed too hard in Afghanistan. They, uh, you know, uh, communism just didn't work. And then unpeeling, you know, the the layers uh, really uh, does, you know, change your mind on a lot of things. But uh, anyway, getting back to Ermhart, um he uh, doesn't express, well, didn't really express many political views throughout his career, though uh, he did admit to one, which is just being a hawk. Um, so short, he left the CIA in 1998, but after that, he wrote an article, Seeing Russia Plain, the Russian Crisis and American Intelligence, uh, in March 1999. In, in it, he made the thoughtful suggestion that not all peoples are capable of civilized self-government. Erbhardt admits to allow such a possibility is abhorrent to the current to the political correctness of a, quote, civilized person. However, it cannot be ruled out that Russia's post-Soviet experience means that the self-evident truths of Jefferson and Lincoln are not for all peoples, but only for some. Um, so that gives you a flavor of um, heart. Um, th this article in particular um, appeared in the National Interest Um and yeah just kind of really echoes the you know what's going on with these guys um in conclusion well just on this little bio of Ermhart, um he's got experience that encompass all of the primary attack strategies um of the us against the ussr and russia um looking at first nuclear strikes strategies of tension use of a fifth column um, he also had a research interest in the uh, is Islamic organization Hizbut Tahir, uh, which we think I think we mentioned before, but I'm I'm not quite sure. Were a kind of Islamist organization um, that were you know dedicated to bringing about the caliphate and stuff like that. But I think they were less militant and more. Um, uh, collusive or collaborative i think they like to use convincing uh organizing coups so um more of a intelligence agency style of uh doing business i i think i guess what yeah that so that but they um had a significant presence in russia uh near the ural mountains which were strategic centers for communications uh fuel energy um and that that is also something of notes. Um, so in any any angle at Russia, um, hot's there.
Fritz Imhoff's father was also had uh, a lot of deep Nazi connections. Um, so I guess to get into those, we've got to start with uh, Theodor Oberlander, who was um, a German Nazi. Uh, he was a professor of the Ostforschung, which I think was like a Eastern Studies um, unit or something. Um, uh, he was also a officer of German military intelligence. So he was the commander of the ethnic units of Nazi collaborators uh, in the Eastern Front during World War II and later became a West German politician um, on the ultra-right. Um, so he was a member of the Nazi party and the SA and was involved in the Soviet-German Soviet military cooperation and contacts with Soviet intelligence and Comintern agents um, uh, earlier, before the war. Um, in 1993, uh, uh, he became the leader of the Bund Duscher Osten, which advocated for the radical Germanization of the Eastern provinces. Um, he was an officer in the Abelware and organized the special units of ethnic Germans against Poland. In 1940, he became head of the German repatriation miss mission in eastern Galicia and had intelligence contacts with Ukrainian nationalists, including the OUMB. Uh, in 41, he commanded uh, an Abwehr group of military political units that participated in the murders and pogroms of Jewish and Polish populations in Lvov. Um, Obviously, we know during that time, the OUMB was, you know, heavily involved in this. So uh, I think it's been mentioned in maybe previous episodes, um, Oberlander's, you know, connection to all of this and that kind of stuff. But just building building back up in case anyone doesn't know. Um, so from Oberlander, by the way, um, who, interestingly enough, was actually a, a close associate of uh, Major General Charles Willoughby, Douglas MacArthur's former head of intelligence and also a leading figure in the Sovereign Order of St. John, the Pitchell version, uh, for many years. Uh, so I wanted to interject that to, again, emphasize the incestuous nature of all these groups. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's, I mean, we're, it, it gets even more uh, here. So um, between 42 and 43, he was the commander of the mixed German and Caucasian unit, uh, Sonderverband Bergmann, which was involved in subversion, propaganda, anti-partisan activities in the Northern Caucasus and Crimea. Um, so, I mean, wow, very relevant for today. Eh? Uh, in 1943 to 44, he was involved in uh, political intelligence and scholarly activities under the control and on behalf of the SS and uh, Nazi party in Prague. Um, in 45, he was, um, uh, he made contact with US intelligence um, after negotiating the surrender of uh, Moltsev's air corps to General Patton. Um, after a short period of de quote denazification and ideological retouching, he returned to politics as an ultra right Christian Democrat and pan Western anti communist and championed the United Europe. Um, 
he was a member of the Abendlandish Action, uh, leader of the West German Resettlers Movement and a federal minister in Adenauer's cabinet. Um, he was also part of the World Anti-Communist League. Um, he was at a meeting in of theirs in 1984 uh, that was also attended by, um, I think, uh, Stetsko's wife that you mentioned earlier um, and uh, Katerina Yushchenko, who went on to be a uh, wife of uh, Viktor Yushchenko. Um, and Fritz Sermhoff was also at this WACL meeting, 1984. Um, so, uh, yeah, as mentioned, uh, this puts him in connect with Charles, Willib Charles Willoughby, uh, John uh, Singulab, um, Fritz Sermhoff, Robert Gates, and Werner von Braun. Um, however, there's another figure uh, important here, uh, Major General Karl Haushofer, um, who, you know, taught geopolitics in Munich and was a very big influence on Hitler's ideas, um, you know, of Lieben, Liebensraum and conquering the East. Uh, one of his students was Theodor Oberlander, um, who incorporated the ideas into Ostforschung, which was the German precursor to the Anglo, you know, the English Russian studies. Um, Oberlander's specialty in Ostforschung was uh, something called Gresenkampf, which was the border struggle of ethnic Germans living under the alien rule of Polish and Lithuanian governments. When, not, when the Nazis appointed Oberlander head of the Bund Deutsche Osten, BDO, League for the German East, um, he put Haushofer's ideas into practice by organizing a fifth column of ethnic Germans in Western Poland and the Baltics. Uh, one of uh, Haushofer's students was Fritz Ermhoff Sr., uh, who later became a Nazi agent of influence in the United States. Ermhardt went on a geopolitical world tour in 1938 and privately printed a book calling for a Munich II, a more ambitious plan of aggression against the Soviet Union. Uh, Wilhelm Canaris, um, who I think was a member of the, an admiral in the German Navy, or a member of the German Navy, uh, he was a... Um, listed here as a military intelligence officer um was a back channel for hitler uh in deal making with western powers so canaris put out the feelers for um another agreement with britain and france for several months so this i'm guessing is in yeah th 38 so um what what who knows their world war Two really well what would have happened at that time? That would have been during the time of the Spanish uh, War, obviously, where there was basically the uh, covert war starting. And then what also was that when the, um, so before or after the uh, Soviet non-Nazi pact? I, I wonder as well, uh, or I wonder if it's more, um, you know, like uh, annexation of like Czecho Czechoslovakia or something. Yeah, Maybe I think that might have been as well in 38 as well, I think, too. Okay. Yeah. So 
I mean, uh, just just to kind of reiterate that. So, Brit Sermhoff Senior was um, a um, you know a student of uh, Haushofer, who was kind of um, an ideologue of Lebensraum. Um, that he was a kind of peer and contemporary of Thomas Oberlander, and Fritz Ermhardt, uh Senior was basically building the case for uh, Nazi Germany with the Western powers. Um, so the this book um, he wrote, um, what was in it? Um, Basically, it was a basically Fritz Ermhoff Senior believed that a kind of knew what that World War Two could be prevented through an agreement between the Axis powers, uh, Germany, Italy, and Japan, and Britain and France, that would allow the Axis powers to become empires through the conquest of the Soviet Union and other territories. He argued that a united German-Italian-Japanese crusade against the Soviet Union, undertaken with the tacit consent of the Western powers, would relieve Western Europe of German and Italian pressure and prevent Russia from continuing industrialization and becoming a strong world power. Um, his yeah, that book, was, um, you know, I just confirmed it. it the, uh, the Second World War officially started in 39. So, yeah, this is really interesting. And it started with the invasion of Poland. But effectively, we were already fighting uh, the de facto civil war in Spain at the time uh, between the uh, the loyalists and uh, the revolutionaries. I, I don't know if those were exactly what the sides were uh, described as. But yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's really interesting. He's basically going around Europe, raising a lot of these talking points in 38. And then, uh, yeah, despite the Soviet Nazi pact, they still start pushing eastward. <laughs> yeah, I, I I just looked up. So in 38, you've got, um, yeah, as well. I mean, the, the annexation of Czechoslovakia and uh, the Anschluss, so annexation of Austria as well. So that that's really, I I guess even though the war started in thirty nine, um, maybe for Germany, uh, those were probably the first clear moves. Um, I could imagine as well that that you know other people had to pay where the other powers I think had to start paying attention, uh, to what was going on. The book was addressed to the kind of pro Nazi circles of the U.S. right. Um, that had helped to rearm the Wehrmacht and supply Hitler with raw materials and technology uh, for the war. Um, and now today, Ermhardt's son, uh, Fritz Ermhardt, who we started talking about, the uh, modern one, um, is um, basically still the uh, main liaison between descendants of Nazi collaborators in the Soviet Union and the post-Nazi ultra-right elements uh, in the U.S. intelligence community. Um, Fritz's um, connections just keep keep on going. So his maternal uncle was a man by the name of uh, Edward Veach uh, Sittler, um, who was an enthusiastic member of the Nazi party, who abandoned his U.S. citizenship to work for Ribbentrop, uh, broadcasting propaganda into the US. Uh, Margaret Sittler, Edward's younger sister, married Ermhardt Sr. in 1935 
and they were both uh, very proud of their German heritage and culture. Margaret lived in Germany during 1930 to 1931 after graduates graduating from Wittenberg University, where she most likely met Fritz. Uh, given her husband's costly international travels uh, and private publishing on a university instructor's modest income, uh, it's likely that she was unaware of his activities with German intelligence. Edward Sittler's decision to move to Germany in 1937 and his attraction to Nazism were probably influenced by Margaret and Fritz. Uh, Sittler became a well-known became well known for appearing as a witness in the highly publicized trial of radio traitors in 1946 and 1947 and his failed attempts to regain uh, US citizenship. Um Jr. back to him earned his bachelor's degree from a Wittenberg University, which is a small private Lutheran college in Ohio where his mother, uh, who we just mentioned, Margaret Sidler Ermhart, um, was a history professor from 1953 to 1974. Uh, whilst Margaret did not publish any works related to Russia or the USSR, she had a keen interest in the country, the nature of which is unclear. Um, CIA di Director, Deputy Director John McLaughlin, um, in 2001 gave a speech at Wittenberg University and in this speech he assigned a central place to Margaret Earnhardt's memory recalling how she painted a vivid picture of the Soviet Union based on her own experiences during her lectures with meetings and students um, so here's that quote from his speech um, in 1960 Wittenberg was full of infectious faculty the name of one of them is the Professor Margaret Ermhart. Uh, in her lectures and meetings with students over a cup of coffee, Margaret Ermhart painted a vivid picture seen with her own eyes of a distant, exotic and sometimes dangerous place for me, the Soviet Union. Of course, now traveling to Russia is a common thing, but understand that then, in the early 1960s, a trip to the USSR of a professor from Wittenberg was um, an event. It's in capitals there. Uh, and her return was an occasion for a meeting in the Weaver Chapel. If it was as if someone had returned from Mars, uh, since then, decades have passed. And among other activities, I've happened to lead the CIA's analytical work on Russia and the former USSR. And now, when I myself have visited the streets of Moscow, Kiev, Tbilisi, <laughs> uh, Tashkent, uh, Dushanbe, um, I still vividly remember what was set, what set me on this path now and how I sat in the University Weaver Chapel and listened to Margaret Earnhardt's fascinating stories about her adventures in the Soviet Union. Will I ever do something like that? I thought. Uh, and that's the end of the quote. Um, and that's uh, kind of um, what we've got on Fritz. So um, just to kind of wrap up again, 
uh, I mean, he's been a deep uh, worker for um, the US military establishment, uh, particularly for the neocons. Um, and we've kind of uncovered this, uh, you know, very deep uh, Nazi and German connection in his uh, background. Another figure, too, interestingly enough, uh, linked to Theodore Oberlander, just want to point out, was uh, Ruzi Nezarar, which uh, we spoke about in the uh, the first installment. He was um, another big figure tied in with the, he wasn't part of the OUMB, but he was close to Stetsko and Bandera, early figure in the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, um, helped set up uh, the Arab World Congress, I believe, and uh just in general, was one of the uh, earliest, if not the first, advocates of essentially weaponizing Islam against the Soviet Union. So another one of uh, Oberlander's, and he was also a uh, guy tied in with the whole Wackle network, too, obviously, with his links to the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations. So another Wackle connection, another guy bent on destroying the Soviet Union or Russia or whatever, the empire, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, And yeah, another... uh, acolyte of Oberlander, who just comes off as such a wonderful human being on so many levels. And I think that that is a good note to end things on for now. Uh, Obviously, this uh, discussion ended up going on for a little while longer than I had anticipated, though I probably should have known better with uh, the kind of information these guys normally bring to the table. Uh, but anyway, we've uh, covered a lot of ground here, uh, wrapping up with some of the American connections, uh, backing Far West Limited, as well as a little bit more of the murky background that will make a lot more sense in the next episode. And trust me, it's uh, it's going to be quite an episode, guys. This is going to be the one where we're really going to take a deep dive into 9-11 and the uh, Moscow apartment bombings and the role that Far West played in this. It's uh, just some fantastic information. And I think that this is going to be very unique, uh, bringing a lot of uh, stuff to the table that many of you who may have been looking at 9-11 for a lot of years, it's possibly flown under your radar a little bit. Not to be too grandiose, but uh We were very surprised just in general in doing the research with some of the things we were turning up. So I'm excited for this to come out. I think it's uh, going to be very interesting in light of a lot of the stuff that we chronicled in this episode, which is a crucial building block, even though it might seem like it's a little scattershoot. uh, There is method to the madness on display in here, trust me. And uh, it will start to come together in the next episode. So with that... I say to you guys, as always, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got you in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the gold chain. We were ready. My people there, they feeling me. More characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki up Stuck down in the stick Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me Stick it out, say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we got 
Cause they don't let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace Go to war for it About a Genghis Chapo. Come on, legalize it. No need to advertise it. The weed cures the cancer. Everybody even caught a realized if a farmer don't make cash money. When we rock that stash, honey, best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Civilization, what? 